brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. On June 2013, Edward Snowden fled from America after disclosing to several media outlets thousands of classified documents that he had acquired. The documents that Snowden leaked showed to the world that the government of the United States was running a global surveillance program spearheaded by the NSA. He also showed that they were working in cooperation with various phone companies and governments abroad. And that not only were they spying on foreign citizens and foreign governments, but they were also spying on their own citizens. The all-seeing eye of the American government had been monitoring many individual phone calls and other communications, just waiting for someone to slip up so that they could be arrested and jailed. The outrage that the world reflected with was, the outrage that the world responded with was reflected in thousands of infuriated headlines across the globe. People felt that their privacy had been violated and that their dignity had been taken away. No one likes to have their deepest, darkest secrets brought to light. And the idea of absolute strangers having access to this kind of information was a terrifying thought. But what if I told you that there was someone else who watched you? Someone who knew not just your online footprint, but everything about you. What if I told you that instead of being a source of terror, this could be a great comfort and a great joy to you? Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I bring you the word of God as summarized under the following theme and points. The God of David, who intimately knows us, holds us in his hand. We will see, first of all, the care of God, and then the response of the psalmist. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Reflect on these words for a moment. You have searched me and known me. They open the psalm and they close it. They are a summary of the psalm. But what do they mean? There are many ways in which we say we know someone. If someone mentions the name and we respond, oh, I know him, we often mean we can pick him out of a crowd or play Dutch bingo and connect him to various family members. Occasionally, we mean more. We know someone on a more pers personal level, their likes or dislikes, perhaps even their beliefs. Sometimes, when we say this, we know someone on an intimate level, their hopes and their dreams. But none of this, says a psalmist, compares to the knowledge that our God has of us. Our God knows not only what our most intimate friend knows of us, but he is acquainted with all our ways. He knows how we tick. He knows why we do the things we do. This can be a scary thing. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, we read, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? We know what can bubble up in our own hearts. We know what can flit across our own imaginations, even if it be ever so briefly. Verse 10 of Jeremiah 17 continues, I, the Lord, search the heart. 
I test the mind, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Psalms says, if we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Everything is laid bare before our God to hold us accountable. If you are committed to sin and you won't repent, this can be a scary thought. But the Holy Spirit is not meant to terrify those who love the Lord. Rather, he's there to help them. This is one of his special roles. As we read in John 14, he is intimately involved with us because he cares for us. We read in Romans 8 as well, likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. God doesn't know us in a scary way, but in a loving way. This realization allows David to celebrate God's intimate involvement with his life as a hugely comforting thing. David's God, our God, puts a hedge around his beloved to protect them because he loves them. He knows us all so well that he knows a word before it's even on our tongues. He knows our needs before we can express them. He surrounds us with his presence behind and before, and he lays his hand on his children to guide us to restrain us when we are tempted to do foolish things and to draw us back to himself if we stray too far. Isn't this a beautiful thing? But it goes even deeper than this. We read in verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. The word for knitted together here It implies a weaving together by the skillful hand of an expert craftsman. From the beginning of our existence on earth, God is already at work. Kids, some of you have seen your mom pregnant. You've seen her belly grow. Every day, every week, every month, the baby grows bigger and bigger. God is at work in her, shaping and forming that baby, just like he shaped and formed you. Just like that baby, you are the work of God's hands. Like David, we all need to understand that we are God's creative workmanship. From the beginning of our lives to the end, God knows how our days will unfold, having written them in his book before even one of them came to be. What's your response to the fact that God knows every day of our lives? One response can be found in Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. There are those who will not put this kind of trust in God. They instead try to flee from God and reject him. But David gives us a bit of an idea of the futility of such a choice. Let's take a look at verses 7 to 12. He says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall hold me, and your right hand shall, uh, shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, 
and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. No matter how high or how low we go, God is there. David expresses this in vivid language for the people of Israel. In Israel, to the east, you have the rugged mountain terrain where the sun rises. And to the west, you have the Mediterranean Sea stretching away off in the distance. David here is saying that even if you rise with the sun and you travel with the speed of light across the mountains and over the ocean as far as the eye can see, even there, you will not be able to, even if we are in distress and we try and hide in the darkest corner where no one else can find us, trying to escape from prying and accusing eyes, even there, our God will be there beside us. God does not tell us this to frighten us. He doesn't want to pound us in submission. Yes, this is terrifying for those who are in rebellion to God. No matter where they run and hide, they will not escape him. But David is writing as a child of God. The Holy Spirit inspired this passage to give us great comfort. The comfort we can receive is like that of a little girl who hides in, the dark, in a dark corner during a fierce storm, terrified by the brilliant flashes of lightning and the roaring of the thunder. But no corner can hide her from the love of her father. It makes no difference if the power is out and the lights are off. The darkness of the house is as little of a barrier to him as if it were light, because he knows it so well. He, intimately familiar with all of her hiding places and her fear of the storm, will seek her out, draw her into his arms, and comfort her. In the same way, God, intimately familiar with all the fears and hiding places of his children, seeks us out, even if we distance ourselves so much that no one else can reach us. We read in verse 10, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. But what if we don't feel this closeness? When we've cut ourselves off from everyone, we can feel incredibly lonely. Sometimes even when things are going well, we can feel like there's a great distance between us and God, and sometimes feel like he's not there at all. Then we look around us, and as one man said, we tend to compare our insides to other people's outsides. And our situation can look pretty grim. When God feels distant, first consider, has God moved or have I moved? Sometimes, not always, but sometimes this is the case. Have we distanced ourselves from God through a spotty devotional life? Seeking God involves both Bible reading and prayer. But sometimes we don't know why God has withdrawn the feeling of his presence. In those moments, we must realize that feelings are not the only or even the primary evidence of God in our lives. That sometimes God uses these feelings of absence to shape us and make us grow. God didn't say in Matthew 7, you'll know them by their feelings. He said, you'll know them by their fruit. 
While we may not feel God's presence, we can look to the fruit that the gospel is bearing in our lives and know that he is still there with us. Whatever your situation, brothers and sisters, know this. God has only ever forsaken one of his children. I'll say that again. God has only ever forsaken one of his children. Who? Jesus Christ. In that terrible moment on the cross, God turned his face away from his son, Jesus Christ in order that we might never be forsaken. What a glorious reality this is for us. It is true we don't always feel God's closeness. It's true that sometimes our lives feel empty. But trust that God will keep his promises. God has truly abandoned Christ in order that his children might never need to be abandoned or forsaken or face his wrath. As he himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. This God who formed the mighty mountains, the raging rivers, the awesome galaxies, is the one who wove us together in our mother's womb. He cares for each child of his because through Jesus Christ, we are adopted as his children. So in all your life, in good times or in bad, in times when God feels close or in times when he feels far away, never stop seeking him. But we also know him in a much richer way. This Christ, our Lord, who ascended into heaven and has been exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus Christ rules over us as our eternal head, through whom the Father governs all things. Isn't this a comforting thought? Having one who, although he is true God, is also true man and understands us? He is the one who said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is the one who sent his spirit into our hearts to help us. And at the end of the day, it is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who holds all of history in his hand. It is he who holds us in his hand. He who knows all of our weaknesses, all of our sorrows, because he's been there. He is the one who holds us in his hand. What a glorious thing. And how we should praise him for this immeasurable comfort. This is our second point, the response of the psalmist. Seeing God's promises laid out for us, how then should we react? In verses 17 to 18, David gives us a beautiful example. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. He sings praise to God, and then he demonstrates taking a childlike comfort and assurance in God's presence. Why is this such a comforting notion for David? We don't know at which point in David's life this psalm was written, but we know that throughout his life he had a very close sense of the presence of God. When he first faced the Philistine Goliath, he did so with the knowledge that the God of Israel was with him. 
when he was fleeing from Saul, he did not kill the Lord's anointed, but he trusted that God, who had all of his days written out for him before one of them came to be, that this God, who had a plan for his ascension to the kingship, would watch over him. He trusted the Lord to help him through that dark time. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba, the thought of being cut off from the presence of God and having God's Holy Spirit withdrawn from him terrified him. We can read about this at length in Psalm 51. What more can we say? When he fought with the Amalekites, fought with Ishbosheth, lost his son Amnon, fled from Absalom, dealt with the rebellion of Sheba, in all of these moments, the knowledge of the presence of God in these times and God's intimate knowledge of him would have been an incredible comfort to him. And David puts a voice to his wonder. In verse 5, he marvels at God's protection, God's hedging him in. Similar, he uses similar language to Job. Think of Job, how, God says, how Satan says to God regarding him, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? This same sense of protection, of being hedged in, this same sense is what God has granted him, despite the fact that his life is so uncertain. In verse 10, he praises God for the fact that no matter where he is, God will lead him and hold him. In verses 14 to 16, he expresses deep satisfaction in the fact that God has been intimately involved with him since before he was born. And he expresses confidence in God's plans already laid out for him in the future. As a central theme to his response of praise, David draws out the concepts of thoughts in particular. He draws a very strong contrast between God's thoughts and his own. He understands his own limitations. His thoughts dwell on anxieties and imperfections. His thoughts are easily understood by God. And even before they are expressed in words, God knows them. His complete trust in God's plans for him, despite not knowing what the future holds, are firmly based on God's goodness and on his knowledge of how much greater God's thoughts are than his own. It's similar to the pronouncement that we find in Isaiah 55, verse 8, where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's thoughts include knowing each of our thoughts and more. For David, he can't comprehend the vastness of it. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, and I cannot attain it. It just blows him away. Is it wonderful for you? God says to his people in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is a statement not merely limited to the people of Israel so many years ago, but it is a reality which applies to us today as well. After all, don't we read in Romans 8, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So even when things seem not to be going well, or our future seems uncertain, we can rest assured that whatever may come, God has all of our days planned out for us in his book. Is this wonderful for you? 
all of his thoughts, everything he sends your way is meant for our growth and our good. And that is why God's thoughts are precious to David and why they should be precious to us as well. And when God's thoughts become truly precious to us, when our God becomes truly precious to us, we will respond with a fierce loyalty brought on by love. This is how the psalmist responds as well. In verses 19 to 22 of our passage, he calls on God to slay the wicked, to make them depart from him. David feels completely secure in God's love. He knows that the Lord is good despite the many trials he faces. When people see bad things happen in the world or in their lives, they often say, I don't think the Lord is good because a good God wouldn't let bad things happen. If there's anybody who could say this, it would be David. David, who had all of his friends turn against him. David, who lost a son. David, who had his own family come after him and hound him and try to kill him. David, who had the nation rise up against him. If anyone could say it, it would be David. But David says, that's slander. That's not who the Lord is. That's not what he does. Our God is a good God. And even in the worst things that happen, he has a plan. This is not to say that David sees himself as morally superior to such people who respond in this way. He knows he's a sinful man. That much is clear from passages like Psalm 19, where he says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Rather, in his zeal for the Lord, he counts those who have deliberately set themselves up as enemies of God, as enemies of himself. He wants nothing to do with those who take the Lord's name in vain, who attribute evil to him, who seek after blood, and who hate God. And so David hands him over to God's just judgment and calls on God to show that he is not among them. Ultimately, he does this out of concern for the Lord's honor. Through this statement, David professes unswerving loyalty to the cause of God. He is not free from sin, but he is devoted to godliness. Finally, in contrast to these men, David call, publicly calls on God to search him. He knows that God knows everything about him, and he's already said as much in verse 1. With these words, however, he is proving to those around that he truly wants to serve God, and that he's willing to bear his whole life before him. He then asks God to see if there's any wicked way in him, and to work in him if that is the case, praying that God will then correct him and lead him in a way everlasting. Any possible remnant of sin, whether David is aware of it or not, must be pulled out by the roots. And he realizes that it is only his all-seeing, all-powerful God who is able to accomplish this. Brothers and sisters, in words we grant that God is all-seeing and all-powerful. But do you accept this? Do you accept that he is all-knowing and present everywhere? Do you believe it in your heart? 
I once read a saying that the true test of a man's character is what he does when no one is watching. It might be better put, the true test of a man's character is what he does when only God is watching. When we watch TV shows, when we play soccer, when we interact with our kids or our parents, our wives, our girlfriends, or our boyfriends, do we acknowledge that God is right there with us, seeing what we see and hearing what we say? Do we act that way? But also think of this in a positive way. When we are lonely or depressed, or even when we're happy and content, do we recognize and take comfort and joy in the fact that God is with us? He is our fortress. He hems us in behind and before. No, and he lays his hand upon us. No matter where we are, his hand shall lead us. His right hand shall hold us fast. Our faithful God seeks those who are weak and weary. Despite our shortcomings, we can come to him in faith and without fear. Why without fear? Why can we profess the same things that David does and not cower, terrified at what God might find in the deepest, darkest corners of our hearts? Brothers and sisters, God is not like some big brother government surveillance program. He's not watching every move of his people just waiting for them to slip up so that he can charge them with a crime. We are his children, and he loves us. Brothers and sisters, we're rich. God's constant presence and care for us means that we're the richest people in the world. Nothing can match this. And our Father wants us not to live in fear, but to flourish and grow, to marvel at the riches that were granted in Christ, regardless of our situation. We read in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? God won't condemn us. Jesus Christ bore that condemnation for us. Instead, by the Holy Spirit, working through his word, he will guide us through every difficulty. In Christ, trust that God will grant you his grace and the Holy Spirit if you ask him for them. It might not come in the time that you expect or in the manner that you desire, but he is there for his children and will lead them in the way that is pleasing to him the way everlasting. Search us, O oh God. Amen.